Hello, I'm Adam McNestry, Editor-at-Large of Inside PNC. Welcome back to our podcast series, Unreserved. As part of the series, I'm sitting down with some of the most senior people in the US PNC market to subject their companies to scrutiny and dissect market trends. Today, I'm joined by Christoph Turin, CEO of Zurich North America. Welcome to the show, Christoph. Welcome, Adam, and uh, thank you for having me. Not at all. It's a pleasure. Um, let's um, let's start off with some questions on Zurich, and then we'll we'll zoom out and we'll talk about some of the uh, topical themes for the market at the moment. So I I wanted to um, I wanted to sort of start with um, I suppose the position that you find yourselves in. Uh, you know, I looked over Zurich's H1 results for North America. Uh, 85% combined ratio, 14% growth. I think you actually put up half, um, over half of the group's operating profits. And when you are putting up numbers like that, obviously creates greater room for you to go and do things. You know, it gives management that freedom to answer the question, what's next? So, I, so I'm interested in what you're going to do in North America with that kind of greater latitude that the good performance gives you. Look, and then the results came on the back of a um, longer-term strategy that we've been pursuing for the last couple of years, and, and it was really targeted on shifting the mix of the portfolio to become more balanced, I mean, reducing the volatility of the portfolio as well, and within that, reducing our exposure um, to cap, and I think it's that that really has driven um, the low combined ratio. Now, I also have to copy on it. It's the first half of the year, yeah, and it was a very light cat year. Um, but nevertheless, I mean, strategy is working. We're growing across all business units. Uh, we're growing double digits. And I think what it allows us to do is to continue the execution of the strategy. And that's a very clear one. I mean, we have seven distinct business units. They're all focused on a particular customer segment or distribution channel. Um, and we've highlighted for growth, particularly the middle market in Canada. And so, that is a long-term strategy. We'll continue to invest there, and I think the results um, encourage us that we're on the right path. Well, actually, I wanted to come and talk to you about the the, the middle market because um, I, I suppose when people think about Zurich, what do you think about uh, the, the large account business, right? You know, you have a really, really strong franchise there. It's what you're known for. Um, but I'm I'm interested in the degree to which it's a focus for you now to build out uh, in the middle market and potentially below. And then I, I suppose insofar as it is, what do you need to do to make a success of that? Yeah, so a couple of things. Oh, and, and again, this is a long-term strategy. We started it three, four years ago by, by really highlighting that as an opportunity. I mean, we're punching below our weight in a bit of market segment. There's a lot of capabilities we have in the large account space that we can leverage going into the middle market space. And then there's also quite a few things that are distinctive. And so when I think about what do we need to do in the uh, middle market space? So, so what is different and what the focus is really, um, or what the strategy is really focused on is four areas. I mean, we've separated the uh, underwriters. We've given a dedicated underwriting team and we've invested heavily in new resources. I mean, we have 30% more senior underwriters now than we had 24 months ago in that middle market space. Um, we've invested in industry practices, so industry verticals, because being able to cover the entire needs of a middle market uh, segment customer is much more important. Um, and doing that industry by industry is critically important. And so under John Mizzy at the industry practices team, we've invested heavily in particular sectors that we want to grow. And then the last two pieces um, that we're working on is distribution is different as well. Um, the global brokers play a role there, but it is probably more heavily skewed towards the nationals and the regionals, and that meant we changed our footprint. We've opened regional offices to be able 
um, to go after that middle market segment. And then lastly, we've also invested in technology because turnaround times are an issue. I mean, um, we need to make that better. We need to have better uh, quote ratios. We need to better manage that submission funnel because I'm happy with what we've done so far with the loss ratio of that portfolio. We still need to bring the expense ratio further down um, to get to where we ultimately want to be with that middle market. It's interesting because sometimes the way people talk to me about that space is that there's a lock for businesses that already have a presence there, and it's just very, very hard to build organically. And I think, um, but, I, but I think, it sounds like you think it can be done if you do it right. So I think it can be done. I think it can be done, particularly at this moment in time in the market. I think there's a couple of things that are changing. I mean, you're seeing a roll up of a lot of these smaller regional brokers. You see the brokers as well struggling with the efficiency as they're doing roll ups as they're under pressure. Um, to improve their margins. And some of the smaller players will just not be able to invest in the data and the connectivity that is required. So as you see consolidation um, in the broker space, I think it also gives a better opportunity for some of the larger players in the middle market space that have um, the breadth of coverage, that have the um, underwriting insight, but that also have the appetite to invest in technology and connectivity uh, to drive that efficiency as brokers uh, roll a platform. So I think it's that discontinuity as well that allows us um, to enter the marketplace and, and gain uh, market share. Do you, do you still find that there are some clients that don't want to deal with an organization as big as, as, as Zurich? They just feel like there's a kind of, there's a there's a culture mismatch there? I, I think it, it is not about size. I think what it is, is about continuity. And so making sure that when we declare appetite, when we declare um, we have a match in terms of underwriting appetite within a particular sector, we need to be, see as be seen as being consistent and being consistent for the longer term. I think that is the much more critical um, piece that you need to get right in the middle market segment. Right. It's interesting you talk about consistency. So um, I, I wanted to come and talk about the, the, the ENS business. So you named a dedicated leader for your ENS business this year. And I know at times one of the things that, that I've heard in private discussions with wholesale brokers is they haven't felt that there was a full clarity around Zurich's appetite and distribution strategy around ENS. And I'm interested in how you're going to go about getting that right this time and, and, and potentially growing a business in a segment where you're really significantly underweight. Yeah, and, and look, and under the Steadfast brand name, I mean, we've been a significant player um, in the ENS space for a longer period of time. I mean, we have a five, seven hundred million dollar book. Some of that sits in the uh, program space. But but I think you're absolutely right. I think the issue is that we did not have a distinct business unit. I mean, back to the overall strategy. Now, every business unit is focused on a particular distribution channel or customer segment. I mean, in this case, we did not have that for the ENS market. So we brought Chris Lewis in and, and his focus is really on making sure that we have the right capabilities in place and the right proposition um, for the ENS wholesale channel space. And that means um, it's heavily consolidated market. So the ability to be able to automate um, some of the underwriting decisions, I mean, being able to exchange data, have faster turnaround times as well uh, from an underwriting perspective. I mean, those are all things that are critically important. I mean, by having an embedded international account space, we did not have that distinct um, proposition. So. That is what we are trying to build. Um, we don't have a particular growth uh, target for ENS. What's really important to me is that we get this right, that we understand where we have overlap of appetite and where we see profitable opportunities. And if we see those, and there is definitely growth um, in the ENS market, 
that could lead to growth. But uh, the first and clear priority for Chris is to have a distinct value proposition, particularly for that channel. Does it, does that create any sort of difficult? I, I suppose maybe I'm thinking about um, people who uh, carriers have operated through the wholesale market and then going through retail that they, they they get some pushback from their distribution. Does that happen the other way around? If you you know you very heavy retail presence, smaller in wholesale, and you start to to work on that wholesale proposition, does that create any distribution pushback from the retailers? But I, th- I think it's a. Uh it's critical that we're clear around what the proposition is to the wholesale channel and how that is distinct. Um, so it is smaller limits, it is shorter limits, it is faster turnaround times. It's also a much more opportunistic play. We'll go in when capacity is there at the right pricing, we'll pull back out when that is not the case. Um, we make very, very different commitments in the national account space and the middle market space. Those are long-term com- commitments, they're different relationships. So, so I think that distinction is important, and to that extent, I don't think they need to be um, leading to any friction. Understood. I, I I want to talk a little bit about growth. So I you know, again acknowledging that it was a light cap period in the first half. You know, an eighty-five percent combined ratio. You look at that and you say, clearly there's margin in the business. There's good margin in the business right now. Um, you know, is now the time, therefore, to leverage your market position to put out larger lines in in North American commercial lines and potentially take some share? Yeah. So uh, that's an easy one. Most definitely not. Yeah, I think one one of the things that actually has been core to our strategy, we've been able to grow while doing that, is to be much more deliberate around how we deploy capacity and how we set limits. And we have a long term strategy that is not changing around managing uh, the volatility of our book. So, so you will not see us change um, our limit appetite. I think what what changes though, and, and the momentum that we have in the market is, I mean, we are looking for new business, we are looking for new opportunities. I mean, um, basically across the entire spectrum. I mean. We will grow with the market in, in national accounts, and there's still some momentum there. We want to see disproportionate growth in, in Canada and middle market. So there's plenty of areas where we can grow, but 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 we're definitely not changing um, our stance on limits. That's something your competitors will be very happy to hear. I think um, I, I I don't think I'm the only one that has the view that the limit compression uh, has <clears> just been absolutely <throat> critical to the improved performance. And as soon as you start to get people competing and pushing limits higher, that's that's going to be the death of the, the firming part of the cycle. But also think about what what drove some of those decisions. No, I mean the increased severity and frequency of NatCats on the property side. I mean the only way we can we can somehow manage the volatility of that property book is by being very deliberate on what limits we set, and then on the casualty side as well. When you see some of the nuclear verdicts, I mean if we don't have discipline around limits, I mean that is a very very difficult line to continue to write. You um. You talked about the cat, so let's let's zoom out now and talk about some some bigger industry questions, um, and, and sort of move a little bit beyond Zurich. But um, so we, one of the things we're trying to do right now is get a get a handle on uh, the reinsurance market and one one, and and perhaps even more importantly, how that's going to play through for uh, the primary market. So I so I look at Zurich, and you're you buy a pretty comprehensive reinsurance program, which means that you know you. As you write the inwards book, you have a pretty good handle of the type of cat losses that you could be left with net. Now, sort of imagine a, a, imagine this scenario, and it's it, 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 consider it in kind of like vague terms, a bit fuzzy around the edges. But you know, say your retention doubles, 
your occurrence cover costs 50% more than it did last year. You know, you lose an aggregate deal. You know, you just have that massive move against you in terms of pricing structure, terms and conditions. How does that change the way you think about writing the inwards property book? Yeah, so it's um, it sounds like a headline that that floated around a few week, weeks ago, though, but it was phrased slightly uh, differently. I mean, I I don't think that um, applies. I mean, to some of the larger commercial carriers that have relatively high retentions. So when the industry was talking about upping retentions, I mean, doubling pricing, um, I think they were particularly targeting some of the smaller personal lines players with very low retentions. I think they will come under pressure it'll be hard for them to access the capacity that is required, and that will put pressure on the market. When I look at Zurich, I mean, as you know, we have a relatively high retention at 650 million. I mean, Ian came in at 550, so even with an event like Ian, we stay below our capacity. I think that coverage um, has worked well for reinsurers as well. There may be some discussions around price, but I would assume that that coverage stays in place and it doesn't have an impact um, on our capacity. Now, you mentioned the aggregate cover. That's an economic decision. I mean, if the pricing is not right, we may decide um, not to renew that or renew it at um, at a different structure, but that should not have any impact on the capacity that is available to us. It's interesting. So the, the underwriting decisions are not largely shaped by the outwards that you have in place? No, I mean, underwriting decisions. I mean, we are a gross underwriting company. So, I mean, it needs to stand on its own legs. I mean, that is how we price it. I mean, the reinsurance decision comes really in um, when we think about how do you protect the balance sheet for extreme events and how do you protect some of the earnings um, volatility at the overall group level. But the pricing is done on a gross basis. So, this should not have an impact. Um, on our pricing now, the fact that reinsurers all need to reprice because of increased frequency and severity, I mean, that will trickle down into the primary space as well, for sure. Yeah, well, I was going to ask that. I mean, we, it, it does look like we're heading for, for a, for a rock-hard uh, reinsurance market in, in property. I'm just wondering what you think the various different effects will be for the, the, the primary market as that plays through. Yeah, so look, I think it will play through um, and it'll play through in, in different ways. I mean, the, the big discussion at CIB this year was not about rate, it was about access to capacity. Um, people are worried about what capacity will be available. Um, so that will definitely be one dynamic that will be um, important. Um, I would assume that some of the program space, ENS space, that, that are pure cat exposed programs are going to struggle to find that capacity. I think in the primary admitted space, um, you'll probably see a more stable market, but you'll see pressure on pricing for sure. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Look, I think it's going to be it's going to be a very different um, it's going to be a very different landscape. And you know, we've all, and we've already passed through a period of multiple years of rate rises. Um, to move on um, and talk about um, economic inflation. Um, so I think. Um, Look, we're we're something like eighteen months into the period of elevated economic inflation. Um, the impact in short tail lines uh, for for loss costs is is very clear and straightforward. Um, yeah. I'm interested though in how you've seen the impact of economic inflation specifically show up today in longer tail lines, um, or is it more a concern that that's going to become apparent in the numbers over the next two three years? 
Yeah, it, 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 um, so it's an interesting question. Oh, and, and I think you're absolutely right. I mean, inflation and the spike in inflation, I mean, has impacted um, the short tail lines, I mean, quite dramatically, I mean, particularly on the personal line side. Um, where we see the short-term inflation is in our property book. And, and that is not a rate issue, that is a valuation issue. And so we're pushing hard to get with our brokers and also with our customers, I mean, to understand that increases in insured values, I mean, being in means an increase in insured risk. I mean, that is just the underlying risk that has increased. That's where you see it um, coming through. On the long tail lines, I mean, we've always held different assumptions in our liability portfolio. There were longer uh, term assumptions around um, loss cost inflation. Some of that is driven much more by social inflation. I mean, when you think about since 2017, I mean, casualty losses for the industry have grown by more than 50%. I mean, that that has to be reflected in, in long-term trends and how we think about that book. So I don't think that economic inflation will make that much of a difference. I mean, it, it of course changes um, the overall um, parameters of the underlying risk. I mean, when sales volumes go up in, in nominal terms, I mean, that creates some more exposure, but, but the trend line uh, will not be truly impacted um, by uh, the ups and downs of economic inflation. It's really much more social inflation. When you look at workers' comp, uh, there as well, we've been having um, longer-term cost inflations um, assumptions yeah, that were quite a bit higher than the CPI, low CPI numbers that we saw until two years ago. Yeah. At the same time, you don't see medical cost inflation spiking up to the levels that you see um, on the economic inflation. So that book has been more stable from a long-term um, assumption. And there as well, the pure inflationary aspect, I mean, you won't find it in rates, so you still see flat or slightly negative rate on workers' comp. Um, the inflation goes through in the salary base as the basis of calculation. I mean, that is going up year over year. So there's some embedded hedge against that economic inflation in that book. Yeah, I suppose in some ways it feels like we're on a, on a similar page, which is I feel like the industry has a massive problem in social inflation that it needs to deal with and that 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 makes people very rightly concerned. But I feel like some of what is said about the impact of economic inflation in long tail lines, it's this sort of fuzziness around language. Um, and really, it, I, I don't know, the cost of the cost of, of gas, the cost of food isn't what's driving loss costs and in insurance. Pretty great. One thing, look, I suppose one thing we are looking at now. We just had a, we just had the CPI report, right? And we saw, um, we saw that fall from 8.2 percent to 7.7 percent, and you know, stock market went whoosh. Um, I think um, it's a, it's a big if, but, um, but you know, let's assume that we're on a path over the next year or so to, I don't know, a three or four percent inflation rate. You know, just sort of accept the scenario. Um, how do you think that changes the, the, the landscape in the USP and C market? Look, I, I don't think it does, um, to be honest. I mean, if, if you really unpack where inflation plays a role, I mean, the market will look at, at economic inflation and that will have an impact on what we do with valuations of buildings year over year. Um, I don't think that materially will impact the, the um, loss cost trends that we have on our long tail book or on workers' comp. So, um, by and large, I mean, I, I don't see any major impact from a shift in inflation. I, I mean, I suppose the other thing we could see is it uh, it means that maybe interest rates start to come off a little bit, right? You know, there's sort of the yeah, environment that, may change. The, that is the one dynamic that that we'll need to uh, observe. Yeah, I mean, 
as as long tail lines benefit from higher investment income? I mean, um, how does that get priced through? And then similarly, when that reverses, I mean, does it put more pressure on the long tail lines again? But but you're right, it would be more on the back of the changes in investment income and therefore the economic profits that that generates. I want to talk just a little bit about the the pandemic. So one of the things that we saw through the the, the pandemic was just the reduction in in economic activity and kind of um, human behaviour resulting in um, reduced claims activity in, in in certain lines in 2020 and 2021. And, and those look like they will be good underwriting years. Um, life has largely returned to normal post-pandemic, but I think some of the patterns of behavior that we saw there have stuck. You know, there was more homeworking than there was before as being the standout example. Did, looking across your business, do you see any permanent <laughs> impacts on loss patterns or levels from um, from the from the pandemic? So I've been having this discussion with um, our workers' comp team in particular because obviously it does have an impact um, in terms of how people travel, where they work from, etc. And I think it's early days to deduct what that really means because it's also early, it's also early days to figure out what are those working patterns going to look like. I mean, they've changed over the last six months with a slow return um, to office. I don't know what that will look like when we're back into a stable environment, but it's definitely something that we're tracking. We're trying to figure out industry by industry, um, class by class, um, how have the behaviors changed and does that have an impact on frequency severity of some of the things that we see in workers' comp. I mean, similarly in a motor book, yeah, I mean, it's it's you would have thought that with the uh, reduction um, in, in commuting that we would have seen um, a reduction in frequency, but we haven't seen it because, I mean, public transportation is probably less utilized than um, commuting commuting by car. So there's some interesting patterns in, in pretty much every single line that we'll need to understand um, better. They will have an impact on our loss costs, uh, but you say in aggregate, whether this is a benefit or not, uh, too early to tell. Yeah, that makes sense. I want to talk a bit about ESG as well. I, I, I think Zurich has really clearly marked itself out as a as a as a global leader on ESG. But I think specifically about the US, it feels like there's an increasing backlash building in 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 parts of the country. You know, we have uh, we have some states that are refusing to deal with asset managers that have taken fossil fuel divestment action. Are you seeing the same kind of action taken by um, by insurers? So we're not. Um, and 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 look. My observation, I mean, having having spent most of my professional career in Europe, I mean, it's it's clear that um, the debate there has been had, and and pretty much all of Europe, I mean, on the back of what is happening now in Ukraine as well, um, is moving forward because they really only have one choice, which is to become less dependent um, on fossil uh, fuel. Um, in the US, it is more of a balanced discussion uh, because they are. Um, big energy producers. But I think the debate has shifted, though. I mean, when I look at how many customers are asking for support from us in terms of figuring out what does that transition to net zero look like, when I see the demand for some of the new services that we are providing through Zurich Resiliency Solutions or the new products that we're launching in our construction space, I think that dynamic in the U.S. has shifted as well. Our customers understand the risk. You cannot walk away from it. I mean, ESG is part of your overall risk landscape. I think they appreciate the transparency that we provide and the services that we provide as they think through the risks in that uh, transition. And the flip side as well is that 
a lot of these large customers now in their RFPs actually put ESG credentials as one of the criteria um, on providing uh, business to us. So I don't see it as a negative. I see it as a thoughtful way of helping our customers in that transition and being well prepared for that with the right services and products. I, I I suppose what I'm trying to get at in some ways is I feel that there's there are different constituencies and you know there's definitely a constituency of companies that are on board with that um, and who are who are looking that through all facets of their business and want to engage and want insurers as partners who who have that as part of their DNA, but I think there are also uh, more conservative forces you know and and obviously um, you know institutions that buy insurance uh, who have a very different agenda. Um, and would push back quite strongly. And I suppose I've just been wondering whether that's starting to show up uh, in insurance the way it has done in asset management, but it sounds like to date it hasn't. Today it hasn't, though, and we're also not imposing the speed at which our customers transition. I mean, we just want to help them with understanding the risks and what are some of the best practices as they go through that transition, but it has to be their own journey um, in terms of the speed by which uh, they get they get to that net zero point. Understood. Um, and and I suppose just sort of one final thing on that, you know, if if um, you know if if there is a if there is an instance where um, you know where where Zurich has to accept that it might lose some business in conservative areas because of the the values and the the the, sta- the standard it's taken, I suppose, are you guys comfortable with that kind of trade off? Look, I mean, every has been equal. I mean, we're 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 trying to focus on the positive side of things now, which is how do we play in the alternative energy space? How do we provide all the services that our customers need? Yeah. When it ultimately comes in some limited areas to a point where um, we will not underwrite new oil sands exploration, then then we'll take the consequence of that. How are you? Um, how are you finding it on the pl- on, on the employee side? By the way, one of the things people said to me is that you know ESG can be a powerful force in terms of recruitment. Um, you know, as a as a leader in that space, do you find that that's useful in uh, in, in your hiring efforts? Yeah. So I think most employees, and, and and look, we have employees with with different backgrounds. I mean, from different generations, and and you'll find as many different opinions in the company as you will find outside of the company. Now. What you see is that particularly with the younger generation, uh, joining a company that has the right value and aspirations, it is critically important to attract that younger generation. Um, I think having a balanced approach in terms of um, how we work with our customers, I mean, for some of the older generations, I mean, this is highly appreciated uh, as well. So I think in aggregate, most of the company seems to find um, to be in alignment with where we've landed on the whole ESG agenda. Okay. All right, Christoph. Well, that's all we have time for for today. But thank you very much for doing the podcast. I really appreciate it. All right. Great. Great talking to you, Adam. And uh, and thank you to everybody for listening in. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe and look out for future episodes.